Thank you, Marty and worship team. This morning, uh, we will be continuing our series in Ephesians. And lately, if you've been around, we've been jumping all over the place because of um, people being sick and different things, which is probably not unlike some of your lives as well right now. So we're back in chapter 4, and uh, the second half of chapter 4, as Ron spoke on the first 16 verses a couple weeks ago. Uh, And as Ron was speaking, he he talked about how Paul describes how our individual life and walk uh, affects the unity of, of other believers. So how we walk out our faith, how we talk and act, it affects people around us. Uh, we're supposed to live our life worthy of the calling of Christ, which means to be humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another in love, keeping the unity of the Spirit through peace. But Paul also describes how we're to have a unity in our ministry as well, in the body of Christ, in a bigger role. Each of, one of us has a role to play in sharing the gospel and and finally, in how we grow together in unity. So, this morning we're going to look at the rest of chapter 4. And Paul will explain some practical ways in which Jesus changes the way we live our lives. So join me this morning as we take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds... They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the, to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving with one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that you would speak to us through it, through your spirit. We ask this morning that um, you would illuminate the parts of the word that you would have for our hearts, um, that you would challenge us in our perspectives, that you would convict us of our sin, that you would encourage us in our faith walk, and that you would reveal more and more of your truth um, and your heart um, for the mission that you have. We pray this in your name. Amen. Do you like new clothes? I imagine there's some here that really love new clothes, or at least the, the part where you get to go buy them. And I see some husbands who are like, oh, here we go, right? Now, there are probably some of you who hate shopping. Clothes, doesn't matter what it is, just hate it, period. I remember being a kid growing up, and at this time of year when school starts, going shopping with my mom. And my dad was never there. Um, Going shopping with my mom and getting new clothes. And there was something exciting about that. 
each year. It was a big deal. It was exciting to get to pick out your new clothes for the school year. Maybe you have kids that have recently felt that, that same excitement. But there was something for me about feeling that way. There was like a newness that the clothes symbolized. Something was new. Something was different. A feeling of a fresh start or a new beginning. Regardless of how you receive, like receiving or buying clothes, we all like clean clothes. At least I hope we do. If our clothing is dirty or wrecked, we replace it with something that is clean. The clean clothes bring a sense of obvious cleanliness, but also of a new beginning, of starting something. As whatever we were doing with the old clothes, we probably won't be doing with the new clothes or the clean clothes that we've put on. In these verses, Paul speaks about this idea of taking off what is old, this old self, and putting on a new self. We are to take off this old identity, discard it, and embrace a new identity and a new self in Jesus. But there's a problem. We don't always like that, do we? I'm going to pick fun at one of my uh, family members, one of, the, one of the men I respect the most, my father-in-law, Peter. Some of you know him. Um, he's not here today, he's sick, but... Uh, I remember coming to his house. I didn't do this because he's not here today. It just, it just worked. Okay. I remember going to his house not long ago for a meal, and he's, he's sitting there, and, uh, and he's wearing a blue shirt. And, and that was just a little unlike Peter because it's usually kind of like a tan or, or a tacky shirt. It's usually very, like, you don't really notice his shirt. That's not an offensive thing. That's just who he is. So he's wearing this bright blue shirt, collared shirt. It's a nice shirt. Uh, has a crest of his company that he works for, for, for Rogers. But there's this other crest on there that's the 50th anniversary. And I said, oh, that's, when, when was that? And he goes, well, it was in 2000. And I said, you still have this shirt? Not only do you still have this shirt, you still wear this shirt? Like it's in your regular rotation? Here's the thing. Many of you probably have a piece of comfortable clothing at home. Something you've had for a while. Maybe a pair of boots that have been broken in that you love, maybe a favorite pair of jeans, sweater, or shirt, something that has been broken in, something that you like, something that you've worn and makes you comfortable and you come back to it as a place of comfort. Now, there's nothing wrong with keeping a shirt for 20 years or having a favorite pair of shoes or boots or something we wear. But we can also treat our spiritual lives like this. See, we embrace the idea that Christ brings this new self and we dive head first into it. But then things get hard. Or they don't go the way we want them to go. And then we easily come back to that old, comfortable piece of clothing. That old piece of our old self that we put back on. And if we are not careful, we can have parts of that nature, our old nature, creep continually back into our lives. So this morning we're going to look at how do disciples of Christ live out our new identity that we have in him. And so this passage this morning is really broken into two parts. The first few verses talk about what is our new identity? What is this new identity? And the second one is Paul giving instruction on how to live out this new identity. And then we'll pull some things out from that. So verse 17 to 19 says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. 
They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The first thing that Paul says here is that we must no longer live as Gentiles do. And so when he's speaking to his normal audience of Jew and Gentile believer in Ephesians, he's been talking for several chapters now about this unity that must come to Jews and Gentile believers. But now he speaks specifically to the Gentiles. He says, do not live like you used to live. And what he's saying is don't live like your pagan culture. Don't live like the world. You've been called out of the world, if you remember chapter 1, and into something new. Do not live like the world any longer. He gives a few reasons why. He says, first, he says that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. The word futility speaks of pointlessness or uselessness. One person write that a foolish method of aiming at a foolish goal. Now, Paul is speaking about this in terms of a spiritual reality. Pagan culture in the Gentile time worshipped all sorts of other things. All sorts of other gods. Similar to how our culture worships things like money and politics and power and individuality. Pagan culture worshipped many of these same things and gods who were over these same things. But Paul urges his friends in Ephesus to not go back to that. They have found something new. A new truth. The truth. They found the person of Jesus. And any other pursuit of worship is pointless. He is the name above any very other name. So he urges them to not go back to who they were before. Nor for you and I to return to our ways of thinking and worship before Christ. Second, Paul says that they are darkened in their understanding. They have not embraced the light. They are trapped in the darkness of their sin. And they do not understand the hope of Christ or the joy that comes with knowing him. Third, Paul says that they become alienated because of the hardening of their hearts. They are cut off from the spiritual life. In chapter 2, it talks about before we know Christ, we were dead in our sins. but We were made alive in Christ by believing in him through faith, by accepting that gift of grace. And so these Gentiles, because they remain dead in their sins, separated from the one who can bring spirituality to them. Fourth, is because of this hardening of their hearts, they have become callous. And their lives are marked with sensuality, or you could use promiscuity. And every kind of impurity with a desire for more. They love the pursuit of their flesh because they know no other way than that. So Paul says, as a new creation, we are to think differently. Respond to truth differently, act differently than our culture around us. We are to be an example of, he's talked about how the church should be this example of unity that becomes a beacon to the world, of working together, of getting along, of loving, of bearing with one another. And so sometimes when we, when we hear things like these, we, we look and say, well, the world's bad and the church or Jesus is good, so maybe that means we shouldn't interact with anybody. Like, let's just be safe. That's not what he's saying here. If anything, it's us remembering our condition before we put on our new self. And it should bring a great burden and desire to fill our hearts with a passion to reach those around us who don't know Jesus. Because as Paul is saying to his Gentile believers, these other Gentiles, he says, don't live like your Gentile culture, but in not living like your Gentile culture, remember who you were at one time. And all that Jesus has done for you. Paul continues on in verse 20. 
to 24, but this is, but that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your old manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. True righteousness and holiness. The second thing that Paul says about this new identity is that it is only found in Christ. And we're going to get to this a little later, but we'll, we'll cover it really quick here. He uses kind of three images. And this first idea is learning, or you could think of it as like school. The, the idea that is, this is, not the way that you have, this is not the way that you have learned Christ. right? You did not learn to live like this. You have learned Christ, and he's led you somewhere else. You were taught in him. So we as believers must remember the things that we were taught in Christ to live. How we ought to live as people of Jesus. Christianity is not simply about knowing about Jesus, it's about living for Jesus. And we talked about this last week and this idea that in in Christ's love we need to know Christ's love, but we also need to experience Christ's love. The idea of learning about Jesus is not simply learning about him, it's this idea of understanding that we learn about having a relationship with Jesus. That this is the source. And this new life can have no other source than that of Jesus. It must come from a relationship with him. The second image he uses of clothing. Take on and put off. We have covered this briefly, but Paul insinuates the reality of a choice of embracing Christ. We must choose this new life by letting go of our old life. Casting away, taking off our old self and putting on a new self in Jesus. You will see in a few minutes how Paul illustrates casting off sinful practice and then replacing it with a righteous practice. That's the second part of this text. The reality is that to continually embrace our new identity, we must choose each day to clothe ourselves in this new identity. And sometimes some would teach you that, you know, we don't have any work to do as believers in this. That we just pray to God, accept Jesus, and we're good. But faith is work. It's not a work that saves you. But it's a work of obedience as we pursue Christ. Make no mistake. Apathy is not faith. We must work out our faith in fear and trembling. So Paul also speaks about this new creation through renewal. This new self is a life of renewal. You have put your faith in Christ and you are being renewed. And this is important for us to understand for two reasons. Renewal is is important for, for a couple of things. First, we often cheapen the gospel to the single event, like I just said. This idea that we say a prayer and we're good. We get to go to heaven. It doesn't matter how I live my life. That's North American Christianity, in a nutshell. If I could slim it down to one sentence, that's what most North American Christians, how they live. We know that by research, by people like the Barna Group or Ed Stetzer, who research North American Christianity and talk about how really... Bible engagement is so low, it's, it's even hard to comprehend at this point. That people probably read their Bible once a month. Regular church attenders are reading their Bible around once a month. Or they only return to the Word when they are looking for, through a specific issue or going through a specific incident. It's like 5 to 10% of the church actually reads their Bible regularly. And they don't even define regularly by every day. They're saying like 5 to 7 days a week. Unfortunately, too much of our North American culture and our faith is found in that cheapness of how we see the gospel. 
We don't have any expectation about suffering or sacrificial love. We have a lack of passion to reach the lost or our community, a fear and an inability to share the gospel. We don't need to do that. That's why we have pastors. And heaven forbid if our faith cuts into anything that would make us uncomfortable. That's North American Christianity. But it's a cheap view of his grace, of Jesus' grace. And it's a cheap view of the gospel because the gospel is not about you saying a prayer. It's actually not even about you going to heaven. That's the byproduct of embracing the gospel. The gospel is about you being renewed. It's about an old self disappearing and a new self taking its place and a process of renewal that will happen continually in your life and you saying, Jesus, I want you to change who I am. That's the gospel. A life that was broken, lost, and dead being brought to life, fixed, and found in Christ. Christ desires to renew your life, every single part of it, in every single way, into his likeness. Not into your likeness, to his likeness. Now, I can be sometimes problematic in my own self. Sometimes I'm like, well, I don't, I don't want to do that. I want to be my likeness. But it's important that we submit and be obedient to the likeness that Christ wants to develop in us in. Not the way the world would respond to situations, not the way the world would want us to live, the way that Christ would desire for us to live. The second is that this is a lifelong process. You do not arrive one day as a renewed person. It's a commitment, an ongoing thing that starts with the surrendering of our lives to Jesus, but then there's an ongoing process of renewal where we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. The means of this transformation in our lives is through the Word and the Spirit. It's through the Word of God, through us being obedient to the Word, learning through the Word, submitting to the Word, being disciplined in the Word, and allowing the Spirit to transform our lives into the likeness of Jesus. Because as we've already covered in the book of Ephesians, the Spirit's desire is to always glorify Jesus and point us towards the things of Christ. It's God who does this work. But it's you and I who must humbly come to obedience to let him. So as Paul continues in verse 25, he gives several practical illustrations about this new identity. The first one he says is, replace lying with truth-telling. Paul says to do this because we are members of one body. Your words greatly affect the whole body. Since we are united together, false words hurt the body. If we are to be in unity and we are people who perpetuate false words, there is no other outcome that can happen other than our, the body to be hurt. One commentator notes that falsehood stifles unity and truth strengthens unity. And Paul has already emphasized truth in uh, this chapter and in other parts of Ephesians. And we know from various other places in Scripture that God hates lying. You only have to look in one book, in Proverbs. Chapter 6, chapter 12, chapter 21, there's several other places in the book of Proverbs, and that's only one book of the Bible. We know that God hates lying. We also know that John says that Satan is a liar in chapter 8 of his gospel. So simply put, when you tell the truth, you imitate God. When you lie, you imitate Satan. So replace lying or falsehood with truth. Now, this can come in a lot of different realities for us as individuals and corporately. We must speak what is true. We must share what is true. We must confirm what is true. So if you don't know something is true, don't say it. Right? The second thing he says is to replace 
unrighteous anger with righteous anger. There's this belief in the church that Christians can never be angry about anything. It's not true. There's a difference, though, between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. So what does it mean to have righteous anger? I remember having a speaker come to Bible college once, and he was sharing this, and he said he asked this question to some older elementary kids. He said, what does it mean to be righteously angry? One of them put their hands up and said, it's when you're angry, but you don't cuss. That's not, that's not quite it. Righteous anger is an anger against sin. We might even see this own anger in our own self, towards ourself, in our sin. It's certainly an anger towards injustice around the world. Things like poverty, racism, slavery, they should anger us. Because they anger our Father. Anger in itself is not a sin. We are not called to be indifferent to injustices. If that's the case, then evil will consistently and constantly prevail in our world. As believers, we are to stand up for injustices. To hate sin as our Father hates sin. We shouldn't be indifferent to evil. There's a story that many people know from Mark chapter 11 where where Jesus comes to the temple and he starts tossing tables. And what's happening here is Jesus is mad. He's angry. Because they've turned the, the temple, a place of worship and prayer, into a place of selling. And see, these people, these corrupt people who are selling, they're selling pigeons. Why anybody would want to buy a pigeon, I know it's strange for us to understand that. But they were for sacrifice. These pigeons were for sacrifice. And right on the temple steps, they're selling at an inflated price for sure. And they're selling people because they know people are coming in the, as Passover to make sacrifices. And they're selling and making money, making loads of money off of these people. Because they know they need things to sacrifice. And Jesus speaks that this is a house of prayer. He starts throwing the tables. Jesus wasn't unrighteously angry. He was pointing out a sin that was happening. A sin on a place that was called to worship and prayer. Sin should anger us. Sin in your own heart should anger you. It should bother you. Unrighteous anger is self-defensive and out of control. And when that happens, it leads to all sorts of things. Envy, jealousy, and even murder. Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount that anger is the root cause of murder. Paul makes sure to give us some reminders for anger. First, do not sin. So if we want to be righteously anger, our righteous anger can't lead us to sin or it's not righteous anger. So if you're angry, if you find yourself angry and it leads you to sin, that's a problem. Our righteous anger should never lead us to sin. Though sin in itself is cause for anger, that anger cannot cause us sin. We must be careful of this. Secondly, don't let the sun go down in your anger. We hear this a lot when we talk about marriage, right? You know, if you're angry, you know, forgive each other before you go to sleep. I'm not sure how we all do about that. But um, the idea is that this should be a, a, a constant reality of each one of our lives. Don't let anger fester. Resolve it quickly. Even good anger can lead to bitterness. And when bitterness takes root, it can lead to other issues. So though we are to be slow to anger, we need to be quick to diffuse that anger. Third, don't give any opportunity to the devil. 
Deal with your anger. Seek forgiveness or forgive the person that you're angry with. The longer we hold on, the easier it is for Satan to use it to deceive us, to make us violent in our word and action. Violence isn't always found in the way we act. It's in our words sometimes. How we speak is just as important as what we speak. Don't give Satan that opportunity when it comes to anger. Replace that unrighteous anger with righteous anger. Remove that old clothing of anger and put on a new cloth of righteous anger. Number three, he says, replace stealing with working and giving. This one in our culture seems very obvious, right? Like, don't steal. It's a commandment. In first century culture, in Paul's time, um, this was pretty common. It wasn't uncommon for a worker to just steal things from their, their uh, places of employment. Sometimes they would be seasonal workers, and so they'd work for part of the year, and then they'd steal from people the rest of the year, food and, and things they need. But Paul speaks against this cultural narrative. This is not okay. Instead, you must do honest work so that you have something to share with anyone in need. You and I are created to work. You may not like that. But I also believe, in, and I'll hear grumbling about this later today, I also believe as much as we're called to work, that work is a gift from God. Jesus led in this reality. He was a carpenter. He worked a full day before he started his ministry. He also encourages that we should work so that we may have the means to help others. And that, of course, is done in the, in the appropriate way according to your means. But the idea is that we are to work to provide for ourselves, but also to have this ability and this opportunity to give to others who might be in need. Why? So that people don't have to steal. Because when we see people who are struggling or suffering, we are people who provide help. Fourth, he says, replace corrupt talk with edifying talk. The word for foul or corrupt here is used in the New Testament to describe rotten fruit or rotten fish. Corrupt talk doesn't nourish you any more than a rotten piece of fish or a rotten piece of fruit. It creates sickness. And it comes from a corrupt heart. Examples would include lying, abusive language, vulgar references, vicious and unkind words, gossip, slander. We don't like to include those things in these things, but they are. Gossip and slander are corrupt talk. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 36, that on the day of judgment, you will give account for every careless word you spoke. So in place of corrupt talk, we need to speak constructive words that build up and are helpful towards others. Speak encouraging words that give grace to others. It's important, church, that we don't turn a blind eye on things like gossip or slander. We must be careful about lying. When we read this, we, we, we obviously always look at abusive language and vulgar references. Of course we shouldn't be doing those, but then we get to these other pieces of, of word-associated sins, and it's kind of similar to sexual sins. We focus on some and not others, and then when it comes to these ones that come from our tongue, we focus on some and not others. Some seem to be okay in the church. We must be careful about that. Fifth, he says, don't grieve the Spirit. This is an important part in this process of taking off our old self and putting our new self. The spirit can be lied to, offended, dishonored, and disobeyed. 
Anything that's inconsistent to the Spirit's nature will grieve him. Remember, the Spirit seals us with the promise of eternity. It is the one who leads us and is encouraging us and convicting us and empowering us to be more like our Savior, to live out his character. But we can choose to not do that. And that grieves him. The Spirit is always glorifying Jesus. And when we deny that aim, it grieves him. Our aim should be to submit to the Spirit, particularly in our conversations and attitudes, because that seems to be part of what Paul is bringing up here. In our attitudes towards others, in our conversations with others, we, should need, we need to submit to the Spirit. Then, if we're honest with ourselves, we are prideful. And others are sinful, just like us. And we need the Spirit to help us to eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit in our relationships. You may believe you will choose that on your own. And you might for a while. But you will never be successful in it. We need the power of the Spirit. Because spiritual warfare surrounds relationships in the church. Satan always wants to separate the people of Jesus. To cause division. To cause disunity. To cause quarreling. To cause fights. Satan relishes in that. Because the more divided the church is, the less it gets along, the less unified it is, the less it can be on mission for Christ. So he relishes in it. So we need the Spirit speaking and working in our relationships in the church. Finally, Paul says, replace bitterness and rage with kindness and forgiveness. One commentator says says that we need to put off resentful attitudes. Bitterness. Festering anger, indignant outbursts, wrath, public shouting, abusive language, lying, slander, and hostility, which is malice. So we are in their place put on kindness and forgiveness. Friends, wear these virtues like you wear clothes every day. And oh, if this was only a true picture of the church. If kindness and forgiveness were a true picture of the church. This is what we want to be known for. Kindness and forgiveness based on the depth of God's kindness and forgiveness that has been shown to us. God's kindness brought to us through repentance. The psalmist says that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. We are to imitate him in this. If you and I can be forgiven, there is no need to say that we cannot forgive others. Are there consequences for other people's actions? Surely, there is. But we must be a people of forgiveness, forgiving people. So I'll come back to this question. So as disciples of Christ, how do we live out our new identity in him? And there's a couple things that I see quickly as we wrap up. The first is, we need to know God. It's only through that power, like I've said earlier, it's only through the power of God that this new identity is possible. That there's this new life for us. But as this identity comes into fruition in our lives, we must continue to learn and experience who He is. This is what it means to know God, to learn and experience Him. We are not to know about God or know stories about Him. We need to know Him and have relationship with Him. Not only have relationship with him, but he has to be on the rightful place in the scale of our relationship. Here, first, 
before everything else. Relationship with Jesus comes first. And like I said earlier, this comes through work. Not a work of salvation, that can only come through grace. But every relationship in your life takes work. Some more than others, some are natural and easy, some are a little bit more burdensome sometimes, but they all take work. They take humility, they take love, they take practice, they take desire. A relationship with Christ takes work. We know God best through his word and through his spirit. The spirit who dwells in our hearts of those who have put their trust in Jesus. So we need to learn about God, certainly, to walk in obedience and in step with what he calls us to. If you're struggling to know what God is calling you to, um, think of something that makes you uncomfortable. That's probably in the right ballpark. At least from my experience, when I'm asking God, God, what... What do you call me to? Usually it's things that I go, well, I'm not really comfortable with that, God. And God goes, that's not the point. Trust me. I'm calling you into this. I'm going before you. We must be people who read, understand, meditate, and live out the word of God. It must be important to us. We must have a high view of the word. But not just the idea of it. Sometimes the church can worship the Bible. We can't be that. We can't idolize it. It's the active living word of Jesus that has been given to us so that we might know the things of God, the mysteries of Christ, that we might know what it means to follow and worship Jesus. The outworking of this word must be deeply important to us. And if it is, then we will be people who know God and understand the things that we hear and experience the ways that he is calling and working in our lives. The second thing we need really quick is that we need relationships with others. This one is easy to see. It's obvious. And I won't spend a lot of time. You cannot live out these principles that Paul has spoke unless you are in relationship with others. Particularly other believers. You can actually not be obedient to most of the New Testament teaching unless you are in relationship with other believers. You cannot bear with one another in love if you are not with one another. Most of what Paul talks about is sins of the tongue. Well, if I don't speak to anybody, I can't work on that. We need to be in relationship with others. It's an outworking of knowing God. To know God, it's one of the outworkings of when we know God, we want and desire to be in relationships with other believers, with other people. But it needs to be a community that matters. Not just a smile and a hello and how was your day, oh, look at the weather, it rained yesterday, whatever. It needs to be deeper than that. A place of accountability, a place of encouragement, a place of care. Trusted people who can give you a gentle or maybe stern kick in your faith sometimes. We have deep relationships with others. Not with every Christian. That's not practical or possible. But we are to find people that we trust to grow together in Christ-likeness. People we love, people we can challenge and encourage, and can encourage and challenge us. This is important. Third, we need to be self-aware of our own sin. I had a professor in Bible college say once that he would rather have one man who is aware and recognizes the sin in his life than a hundred men serving him who can simply just point out the sin in another person's. I didn't really understand that quote until I got into ministry. I get it now. 
Unfortunately, the church gets a gold star in pointing out the sin of other people. We're great at it. We're great at telling other people how they should live their life, how they should stop sinning, or the things that they do, or the things we don't like about their character, or we don't like about them, or blah, 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 blah. It never ends. When was the last time you were honest with your own heart about your sin? Are you self-aware of your sin? I've had conversations with believers who don't believe they sin. Are you someone who is a, a person of repentance? Do you, tra- do you talk to trusted people about your struggles and the things that you're working through? Notice how Paul doesn't tell the Ephesians to tell his the nearest brother and sister, hey, this is how you should live out these principles, how you should get rid of these sinful things and put on these new things. That's not Paul's desire here. It's for all that hear these words to examine their heart. So it's important, friends, that we would do the same. When we think of the list we went through in verse 25 to 32, do you recognize any of those things in your own life? Things that maybe you're holding on to and you go, man, I need to let that go. I need to embrace this newness that Jesus has for me. And I know, I'm going to have someone come to me at the Pollock and say, Brett, you missed it. Believers are supposed to judge one another and keep each other accountable, certainly. It's fine. But it's not to be done out of hypocrisy. It is to be done out of love and relationship for the purpose of restoration. The purpose of coming forward to somebody else and pointing out sin is to be done in a way that brings restoration out of love. Not out of self-righteousness. Not out of desire to point out the, the things of other people. Not out of hypocrisy. Or not out of some watchdog mentality. It is out of love that we do it to restore a brother. And that always happens best through relationship. And it certainly should never happen before you've examined your own heart. If we are not willing to be honest and self-aware about our own sinful desires and repent, we will never ever fully grasp the freedom of our new identity. Because sin is a barrier to this identity. So we need to be self-aware of our sin. We need to be asking ourselves, Spirit, would you reveal and convict me of sin in my life? Did I just share in that talk that I wasn't supposed to? Were my, was my heart right in this situation? Did I approach, do I need to approach that brother or sister in Christ that I maybe have a struggle with or have a concern with? Am I living in a way that dishonors you? that doesn't glorify you, that I need to repent of? Am I following through in the expectations that you have of me, Lord? Fourth, we need to eagerly desire spiritual maturity in our lives. When we accept Christ, a transformation begins to take place in each one of us. The work of renewal begins, and this lifelong pursuit of submittance to Jesus begins to take shape. The mission of Jesus is discipleship. That's undisputed gospel fact. But the goal of discipleship is maturity. It's so that we might be mature and attain a mature faith so we can't be tossed back and forth by different ideologies and philosophies and beliefs and the world so that we are rooted and established in the truth of Christ. We must eagerly desire the transformational work of Christ consistently in our lives. 
It doesn't happen one time. It's always at work within us. It's the desire to go deeper in your faith, to trust in him more, to become more obedient in understanding in his disciplines and be led further in service for his kingdom. If maturity is not the goal and is not pursued, we will always slowly sink back to our old identity. There must always be movement forward or there will be a slip backwards. And to stay in one place is simply just lukewarm. Mature believers are those who desire to submit to the leading of the Spirit. Remember that choice, that submit to leading of the Spirit. Who allow the renewal and transformation that Jesus brings to be central in their lives. They are people who are passionate about how life-changing the Word of God is. And they are those who deeply desire to help mentor others along in their faith. This is what it means to be mature. It must be our desire for this. Because if we reach a point where we think that we've arrived or we think that we don't need to grow anymore or we will just slip back into these old ways of our old self. We must consistently always be pursuing the things that Jesus has for us. So we live out our new identity in Christ by being aware of our sinful condition while trusting in Christ to renew us and grow us continually into mature believers. So let me ask you a question in closing this morning. What's that spiritual piece of clothing that you keep holding on to that you've tried to take off? What's that piece of clothing that's comfortable and you keep running back to it because of how much you want it to be part of your life? What's that part of your old self that is inhibiting the full transformation of this new self to take place? This morning, as the worship team closes, I'd encourage you to take some time to reflect. Allow God to reveal areas of your heart and your life that you might be clinging to of your old self. Sometimes we can be blind about what's going on in our own lives, in our own hearts. And that's why we have the Spirit, to help us examine what is happening, to help us be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Examine your hearts, things that maybe you're even hiding from yourself. And I would encourage you to pray that the Father would illuminate these things and speak to you, and that you would bring them before him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we could meet in this place, that we have the freedom to do so, and that we could hear your word. Father, we are grateful for your word and the things that it teaches and illuminates in our lives and the power that it has. May we be people of the word, hearers and doers of what it says. May we be passionate about things in your kingdom. May you help us to continue to be transformed by your son and help us to be people who desire desperately to be mature believers. That we would never think that we've arrived at some point or we don't have growing to do or that We don't have things to still learn and discover and experience in our faith. That we would have a desire to see the things that you might be calling us to. Whether uncomfortable or not. Help us be aware of our sin. That we would be people of repentance. That we would handle our sinful nature well. Recognizing that there is a war going on all around us. And that you desire for us to bring these things to your feet so that you can transform us into this new identity, this new self through the work of your spirit. Help us submit to you. Help us submit to your power and the leading of your spirit. 
We pray this in your name. Amen.